Blog Talk Radio. to Seasons of the Witch with Raven and Stephanie Guamaki. We thank you for joining us this evening on this beautiful evening of May, the 2nd of May, but it's been a gorgeous day here today in New England, Um, much hotter than anybody would have ever imagined. It was 90 degrees out today. We hope that you've all had a wonderful celebration for the beginning of the season of Beltane. And in Ashburton Willow, we call it Needway, wow. which indicates the idea of the meadows. The ways of the meadows of the pagan people. Yes. So um, we hope you're being merry and planting plenty of seeds that will grow to fruition with all that you desire in this coming year. Um, just to catch you up on a little bit, uh, since we missed our last show, uh, Raven wasn't feeling particularly well that night, so we decided that this, this show was so important that we wanted to give it our best, and um, so that's what we're doing tonight, Raven Grimasi in his own words, and I'm very excited. I, I proposed this show to Raven because I thought it would be really awesome if he could talk about himself in his own words and not only you know, lay the groundwork for what his life has been about, how he came into the ways, uh, what influenced him, uh, and um, where he's come to today. And it's almost, I thought about it as being autobiographical, and that it would be here and recorded, and we'd have it archived, which I just thought was amazing. So I'm very happy to be a part of this, what I call a little mini project. Yeah. Uh, for you. Well, I think that, you know, part of what I like about it is, you know, I've, I've read the works of um, other authors from the 1800s, you know, who became controversial figures. And people have to speculate about, you know, what they were all about, what they thought, what they meant. And um, some of them have critics, and the critics are free to, you know, point fingers at these authors and say various things. But these authors are gone, and they really can't respond, they can't set the record straight, you know, there's a lot of different things that uh, that happen in those kinds of circumstances. So when Stephanie and I were talking about it, it seemed to me like um, a good idea that I could actually uh, talk about some of the things that people bring up and actually add my, um, I hate to use the word version, I guess they would like it to be my version rather than the <laughs> truth. But. But, yeah, you know, to add my two cents in to say, well, you know, whatever you think I said or did or whatever my belief was, you know, here's where I'm coming from. Um, See if that changes your view at all. Well, 
people, I think, as the person who's living the life of Raven Gramasi, you should be the one to set the record straight, my dear. Well, as they say, I'm, I'm an expert in my own experience. Right. People, um, you know, More have perceptions other... perceptions and, and right. preconceived ideas and people listening to other people's opinions based sure. on their perspectives rather than really developing their own. I, I think this, this, this will talk to that as well as give... Like I said, lay the foundation of yeah, I think of your life. I think it's good. It's just that there are a portion of the population who don't allow facts to get in the way of their opinions, and so you know we'll just say what we uh, have to say, and then it's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. Uh, and uh, just, just before we get started, a little um, uh, commercial, and that is that on Saturday we will be up. Um, not in Cornwall on the Hudson, but near Cornwall on the Hudson at a Beltane festival held by Breed's Closet. And uh, Raven will be speaking there, and we'll have a booth there. We'll be selling our books and uh, some of our products from Raven's Law. And it's usually a beautiful day. The weather forecast is awesome. So if you are in and around that area, please come and join us. Uh, We'll be doing the Maypole and um, there's going to be all kinds of entertainment, vendors, food, good people, good community. Um, it's a good place for you to consider coming to. And then on uh, May 11th, we're going to be at Pandora's Box in Norwich, Connecticut. And uh, we'll be doing a workshop there, which begins at 7 p.m. And uh, you can call and talk to the wonderful, magical proprietress and witch, uh, uh, Allison um, to find out more details or check our website. Uh, you can also find that information there. Um, as you might know, uh, we're still uh, recuperating from our house uh, episode from back in June of 2017. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're hoping that that's going to, well, it's closer to being completed. It's not there yet, though. It's it's still yeah. it's still a ways away, unfortunately. We, we don't know. We we, we don't know. We, be, yeah. we don't know. We need someone who can do oracle divination. <laughs> we need a witch. Um, we talked to the owner of the construction company today, and he's meeting with his uh, project manager to see when they really think we can be back in the house. It yeah. it really doesn't look like we're going to be back at the end of June. Um, which was the contract date of completion. They've been running three months behind. You know, there's there's all kinds of issues that are delaying things. But um, but it's going to be know, bigger and grander yeah, than ever. That's the thing. Yeah. To keep that vision that uh, if that day comes. Well, I have uh, <laughs> I've had a good time choosing the wallpaper, which I'm just pleased, just and delighted about. And now I'm uh, selecting paint colors for the numerous rooms. I started thinking about all that. I go, oh, my gosh, I got a lot of paint colors to choose. I'm not just doing neutral. No, no, I'm not doing neutral. But it's kind of weird, you know, when you talk about wallpaper and talk about paint and there's no walls in the house. Yeah, that's a little difficult to envision. Um, What I did get was these little sample uh, packets where you have a sheet of paper, an 8 by 11 piece of paper, and you paint it. And it, it has adhesive on the back, so rather than painting directly onto the wall, you're painting this piece of paper which you can adhere to the wall, and that way when the painting actually happens, 
you don't have all these different samples on the wall, it doesn't have to be primed, blah, 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 blah. And it's actually very useful because um, I've already changed my mind a couple of times, unfortunately. Um, you do have to buy the samples of paint, but still. Anyway, I digress into that. That's, that's another story. Um, so let's get started on the life and times of Raven Gramassi, mm. the man, the author. <laughs> The, the man, the myth, the legend. The mystic. Yeah, let's get <laughs> let's get started on that part. So, um, Raven. Yes, ma'am. Um, I have known you for approximately twenty years now. Really? Yes. Wow. And and you're still here anyway. Wow. I am, and let me explain why. Because <laughs> um, I started out as being a student of Raven uh, in Italian witchcraft. And um, I was taught Italian witchcraft and progressed through that system and practiced that tradition. And then uh, during that time, a couple years into it, uh, I became a uh, um, personal publicist for Raven and promoted him. And then we developed our relationship. And then we developed our marriage. But through all of this time, this man has remained true to who he is. He's someone that I highly respect, that I treasure for his words of wisdom. He still will put on the teacher's hat when need be to guide me and to help me with my spiritual evolution. I have a great deal of love for him. I trust him. I've never seen any duplicity or hypocrisy or... Um, what do I want to say or um, duality in who he is and that is one of the reasons why I am still here with you because I really respect that and I endeavor to be like him not not in who he is but in the way that he he enjoys and he looks at life even under the circumstances of which he's living now he is still true to who he is he still lives every day the same way and I just think that's miraculous and um, wonderful. So I want to start by first asking you about your childhood. Because we've talked about it before. And, of sure. course, I knew your mother, um, mm-hmm. who was from Italy. Right. And um, I got to know your father. He wasn't around for as long as I right. had the relationship with your mother. But I was, I was wondering, since you've talked to me and others about your childhood, why don't you start with that and and talk a little bit about how you were brought up to view the world and, and what stands out most to you about your childhood. Well, it was interesting in, in, in many ways regarding the um, folkloric elements. Um, Italy has a very rich uh, tradition of uh, folk tales and fairy tales, uh, as, as do many European countries. Um, there's a very special old world feel um, from what I would call old Italy and the peasant witchcraft uh, tradition that I cut my teeth on uh, from that culture. Uh, yeah, my mom was born and raised, uh, she was actually born in a little town called Pagani, um, interesting name there, and uh, it was outside of Naples as I understand it. And uh, she eventually moved to Naples where she spent, I think, her adult life until she moved here. 
um, to the United States. After the close of World War II, my dad was a, an American soldier. He was a paratrooper during the war. And um, one of the campaigns that he fought in was Italy, and that's uh, where he met my mother. They married, and he sent her back uh, to the United States, and he stayed, I, I believe, another year, maybe six months to a year at the close of the war. And she came back and stayed with his family in Pennsylvania. I grew up on a lot of uh, fairy tales and folklore stories. Um, I was taught different things, like, for example, I can remember being, my guess would be five, perhaps six years old, and um, you go out and have these um, spool, these threads that uh, uh, spools of thread came on. Back in the day, they were wood. And when they were empty, I would get one, and we would put a cord through the hole, tie it, and then you'd spin uh, above your head as fast as you can in a uh, clockwise motion. Um, and as it went, it, it made sort of a humming um, quasi-whistle sound. And this was used to call the fairy. And what you would do when you would spin this, you would wait and see if a breeze would come up, looking at trees nearby, bushes nearby, to see if the leaves moved at all. And um, I was taught that if the leaves moved or a breeze came by that you could feel that the fairies had responded to your call. And, um, you know, then I would do childlike things. I mean, I can remember, you know, making little furniture for them, you know, little shelters that were very crude um, and put them out, you know, and I would, uh, I would experience in my spirit um, that I was with the fairy or they were with me. And um, I, I really enjoyed that a lot. And I tried to get my friends to see and experience them too. And uh, they couldn't or didn't or whatever the case may be. And I would try to um, do different things to see if I could get them to see them. And that ended up frustrating a lot of them. And, and actually, I lost uh, several friends who I guess they thought I was putting them on or teasing them or whatever the case may be. Um, so they sort of uh, walked away over time. And that, that happened, actually, uh, even in my teens. And we'll maybe talk about that a little bit. Um, but yes, the childhood, uh, to me, the fairies were very real, very responsive. I used to see enchantment really in, in a lot of things. I I can remember I would set uh, toys up in my uh, bedroom and I believed that the toys would come alive when I wasn't around, you know. So I would I would do things like I would set up some toys and then I would say out loud, Well, I'm gonna go over to so and so's house, I'll be gone for a couple hours, you know, and I'd walk away and then I'd outside and I'd sneak up to my window and I'd try to peek through the window and see if my toys were animated, if they were talking, you know, but, uh, well, they seemed to always know that I was peeking in, so they never animated for me. Well, you're, you're certainly a creative soul. I mean, that's... I suppose. Well, yeah. And I remember I used to, uh, I used to have pictures of different things on the walls in my room when I was a kid, and I would make little sandwiches for them. And I would go up to the picture and I would put the food up next to their mouth and I would close my eyes. And then I'd say out loud, I said, I know that you won't bite this food, you know, because it would be proof that you're real. So I put it up to your mouth, I'll close my eyes, 
you bite it, I'll bite over the bread or shake or whatever it might have been so that my teeth marks are what shows, and then that way you can safely eat without, you know, oh my God. being captured. And I used to do that with uh, with different things. And, you know, I had a lot of fun. and It was very magical, um, very innocent. Looking back on it, it sort of makes me smile, you know, that that I was so... I don't know what's the word. Imaginative. Well, to me, it wasn't imagination, though. It was what was actually going on. Um, I believe that this was real. Um, but it was certainly um, certainly magical, certainly a, a time of believing in the unseen. And, uh, you know, that happened for a really, uh, a really long time. The whole first, uh, being six, seven, eight years old, was a, a very magical time for me. Well, and you also lived all over the country. Yeah, that started when I was eight years old. My my dad worked for the government. Uh, he actually oversaw the underground installation of missile bases. Um, he worked for a company called General Dynamics Astronomics, or Astronautics, I can't remember. Um, but yeah, he would do that. So we had to move to a different state in the Union every summer. So from the time I was eight, I, I was everywhere, one state after another. Um, it, it was a mixed bag because it was hard not making friends or keeping friends. I didn't want to make friends anymore. It's too hard to, to lose them when we move. So I had a few, but I kept them at an arm's distance to some degree. But it gave you a chance to sort of reinvent yourself every time you moved. And it certainly was very helpful in hiding the things that I wasn't supposed to be talking about and, and learning what was not acceptable magical magic-wise to to share or try to get people to see. So it was educational for me as well. And it started a pattern of what I would share and what I would not share. And that stuck with me through my life and actually still is part of my wiring. Mm -hmm. Did you have any paranormal experiences that you can remember as a child? Oh, yeah, I had several very significant ones. And I think every day was sort of paranormal in a way because of the way I lived in my enchanted worldview. But I can actually remember, I can't remember if I was four or five years old, but my earliest memory is I had woken up, whether I had or not, I don't know, but my memory is that I was awake. I'd say maybe four. And I heard something in the uh, closet. And I walked over in my room and I opened up the closet and there was an old woman in there. Um, very old, uh, dressed very much uh, in peasant sort of clothing. And she told me she was a witch. And she was waving her finger and trying to get me to come into the closet. And I didn't want to go into the closet. I was intrigued by her, but I didn't want to go into the closet. <laughs> and so I backed away. And when I backed away, she looked, I wouldn't say annoyed, but there was a look on her face that wasn't very friendly. And all of a sudden, out of the closet came these, um, on the floor, these black oval-shaped discs that were soft and round and animated. And they started pouring out almost like, uh, sometimes you'll see in these Egyptian movies where these scarab beetles, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know, they come pouring out. It yes. was like that. Yes. And it scared me. Um, and I ran into my room, and I woke up my parents, and they said I was dreaming, and they put me back in, in bed. That was my earliest one. Um, my German family, which was my dad's side, um, German and uh, Scott, 
Uh, I had an experience in my grandma's house in Pennsylvania one summer when we visited. I'm told I was eight, maybe ten years old, and um, it was very strange because I was laying in bed up in the attic. They had finished the attic, and I, I didn't like the attic. It was kind of creepy, but so I laid up there and um, trying to fall asleep when I heard the closet door creak. And I looked over the closet door, and I saw a shadow figure the size of a human um, but it was just shadow, no features. And it was walking towards the foot of the bed, and I was like, shit. And when it got to the foot of the bed, it, it um, ducked down so that I couldn't see it anymore. And then all of a sudden, it came up, I could just see its head, and it came up to the edge of the mattress and started pouring across the, oh, the covers like yeah, liquid. Yeah. It wasn't standing, it was pouring. I, I could see the shape, and it would go over the folds in the blanket, and it came up my knees and up to my belly, and when it got to my chest, I blacked out, and I still can't remember what happened after that, but um, I, I think in my 30s, some psychics told me um, that that was something that had been left in the house mm. that was passed to me in some way, some spirit, some being. And I wasn't to learn until um, years and years later that my German side, my grandmother, uh, Vi, and my uncle Frank were actually Pennsylvania Dutch practitioners, hex Dutch practitioners, which I never knew. And um, they used to do uh, healings and different things in my grandma's house. Uh, so my Aunt Dolly told me about this. So actually, I didn't really know this until um, I published my first book. Yeah. And my aunt called me about to congratulate me, and then she started saying how similar it was to what my uh, grandmother and my great uncle were doing, and uh, I was astonished. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Yeah. But those are those are some of the significant ones. Um, my mother was very psychic. She saw all kinds of spirits. She talked to them. So did my grandmother. I can remember being at my grandmother's house sometime. I think I was probably seven or eight, and she was making me some soup and. And she looked back at me. I was sitting at the kitchen table waiting. And all of a sudden, she got this big smile on her face. And she goes, oh, there's the cutest old elderly man standing behind you. And I turned around thinking someone had come into the kitchen and there wasn't anyone there. And um, she started a conversation with him. And But she would do this very casually, you know, just like had somebody had come in. Um, so I had that, on, that kind of psychic um natural thing going on with my mother and with my was around me yeah. all the time and to me even though in the beginning it was kind of weird it just became the new normal I think you know as I was growing older but it was stuff that would annoy my friends or turn my friends off that cost me a couple of uh, significant relationships uh, that I had um, but you know you can only pretend to be someone you're not for so long you know and uh, eventually people discover that this is your world, and they either leave or they accept it. That's understandable. Yeah. Um, we can always come back and, and talk some more about that, but let's, let's move up into your teen years. And um, I know that the, for all of us, that in teen years, it's really about your peer acceptance, and it's, you know, it's, it can be one of those times where it's, uh, you really 
are developing, and how how do you feel about those years? How were they impacted by witchcraft? Were they was witchcraft a part of your world as a teenager? Oh yeah, certainly. Uh, I can't really remember a time when it wasn't in some degree or another. But um, the teens were an interesting. You know, I was I was a child of the '60s. You know, and it was a time of um, experimentation with uh, drugs and social uh, situations. You know, the free love of the hippie time. And I was definitely a hippie. I had hair down to my waist and bell-bottom jeans and beads and the whole bit. And I, I did experiment with different um, substances, um, LSD in particular. And I found that to be very magical. Um, but it was also very difficult. It, it caused a, a lot of a lot of issues. It's probably one thing I wouldn't do again if I had the, the choice. But it certainly did open up magical uh, uh, situations, but it was a very confusing drug for me. And I remember one time a friend of mine and I, we dropped some acid and uh, we went out into uh, outside the, the city and we were walking along and there were some hills that had dry earth. This is in California. So these dry hillsides are very common and they have a um, erosion patterns in them mm-hmm. and we we sat looking at the erosion patterns and all of a sudden those patterns turned into what I would call elven alphabet elven words oh my goodness. and both of us were trying to read them as though we could <laughs> you know? but they looked real they looked like somebody had come along and written an elven and we spent a really long time trying to learn the words and you know test each other and what they might be saying. And I think at one time we we had some moderate success as much as you can when they're on acid and you think, oh, this is actually happening. Um, but the teen years were interesting. I, I spent a lot of time reading. Um, I spent a lot of time practicing spells. I was very intrigued by spells in my teens and I tried to I tried to gain the advantage using spells, you know, in, in my social world, in my school. Um, with my, you know, folks, whatever it might have been, I was really trying to do that. And, and it, looking back, it was a misuse. I mean, today, if I was doing that, I would call it a misuse of magic. But, if, well, but at the time, I didn't you're think You're a teenager, so. though. Well, I'm going to say You're experimenting. The, yeah. yeah. At the I time, mean, I didn't think it was a misuse. Right. Uh, but, you know, at the time when you're a teen, there's a lot of things you're doing that aren't really the the best thing you could be doing, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and you're I'm, not always on the up and up when you're a teen. You sneak out of the house, you hang oh, out yeah. with people you're not allowed to hang out with. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's a time of testing, and yeah. and I certainly tested the limits magically. Um, during my late teens, um, I had a particular incident which really scared the heck out of me because I, I thought I was, you know, pretty powerful, um, and... Um, I had this uh, one time I was sitting, and I can't remember if I was 18 or 19, somewhere around there. I don't think I was 20 yet, but let's say I was 18 or 19. And I was working with this spell um, that was supposed to evoke a particular type of entity, or at least open the doorway where you could see into this realm. And I performed the ritual, and it didn't seem to work. So I closed everything down, and I went and sat on the couch with the plans of watching TV. Now, the hallway in the house I was living in was to my peripheral vision to the right of me, and I saw something moving in the hallway, and I quickly looked down the hallway, and there wasn't anything, and I turned back towards the TV, but every time I did, out of the corner of my eye, I could see something walking up the hallway. 
So I was taught this. Uh, <laughs> I was taught to shift vision, where you sort of allow your eyes to slightly cross, you let them blur, and then you move your head to look at the object without looking directly at it. Yep. You look to the edge of it. Yeah. And then you can see it. It won't fleet, It won't skitter away. So I tried that, fully expecting that nothing would be there, but there was. And there was an entity that I can only say was sort of ape-like but squatty, had no neck, just a round bob head type thing, had a, a barrel-shaped body, long arms, and short, thick um, legs. And it was sort of walking funny, and it was looking at me. And I was like, ooh. You know, so I raised a sphere of energy, which is what I worked with back in the day. You sort of imagine that there's a ball of energy forming between your hands, and you sort of move your hands back and forth like an accordion and you try to sense and build the strength of this and I got it to where I could feel it and I pushed it towards the being thinking it would move away when when the ball approached it but it didn't it was started doing the same thing on its end with its hands and it was pushing the ball back towards me and I was pushing it back towards it and it got into a really significant um, situation <laughs> And I remember summoning up every everything I had in my command. <laughs> and I gave it this final push, and I shouted as loud as I could, and I broke my hands away, and I turned my head away, and I went outside. And uh, when I came back in, there was there was nothing there. You never um, saw it again. Never saw it again. Oh, wow. Um, and never wanted to see it I learned it something in yeah. this. I learned a great deal. I, I learned that I was cocky. I learned not to push the, the limits that way, and I learned to be much more respectful. And I realized that just because I wanted to open a portal or I wanted to see something, yeah. I was not taking into account its feelings. Right. I was not taking into account that I was intruding into its world. And I learned to ask, and I learned to be much more uh, in preparation. Yeah. So it was, it was a good thing for me. Fortunately, I wasn't harmed by it. And maybe that's what the other thing had in mind was just to sort of teach me in a in a very profound way, you know, <laughs> that this isn't a game. Mm -hmm. And I learned that. And then I became very, very respectful. When I left my teens, I took my magic very serious. And I began a, a very, very serious study of classic occult literature. Um, now, I know from, again, talks that we've had that you also were a prolific poet. Yeah, and that I—I I mean, the the things that you—that that preparation of your gift of, of writing enchantments and spells is to me phenomenal. I mean, was that a pre—you know—a precursor to you writing those, or or did that just come naturally to you? You know, the, well, the, the poetic, yeah, the poetic part of that. Well. I was, yeah, I was writing poems. I started writing short stories in uh, the fourth and fifth grade for my friends. Uh -huh. um, and they seemed to like them. Poetry didn't come until my teens. I was a, because I moved so much and had, didn't, wasn't able to maintain friendships because we moved from state to state. I was kind of a lonely uh, teenager, kind of kept to myself a lot. And but I would see at school everybody happy and they had friends and they were in circles and my neighbors had friends and I certainly didn't the summer before school started. I was alone till school started. When school started, I, I didn't know anybody, so I always sat alone and 
would watch people with lunchtime, eating with friends and whatnot, you know. So there was a sorrow in me, and that sorrow started coming out in the form of poems. I would write about seeing people happy. I would write mm. about seeing people holding hands in love. I would write about all the things I never knew in my own life but could see in the lives of others. Mm. And so my poems were very sad, very longing, um, not despairing poems, but certainly really sad. And I, I remember in my uh, 20s, I think it was, I could be wrong, but a very close female friend of mine wanted to read my poems. And I, I rarely share my poems with anyone. Uh, so I let her read all my poems. She actually took my, my whole notebook and she read every poem. And she looked up at me at the end and she said, uh, doesn't anything make you happy? And I looked at her, and instantly I just said, yes, writing sad poems. Yeah. And uh, she just rolled her eyes, and I think she punched me in the arm or something. That, um, um, didn't you didn't you mimeograph a newspaper or something? Hmm? Did you write, did you put out a little thing when you were in high school or no? Well, I wrote for the school paper. Right. I wrote little things for the school paper. Uh, I mean, literally, you have been writing your whole life. Yeah, I've been writing since. Like I said, I think it was in grade school. Yeah, before. yeah I think yeah. I, yeah, I've been writing something. Right. It honed my communication skills. People, you know, compliment me that I have comp- uh, communication skills. That I would like to believe that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like to to share stories. As you know, <laughs> I'm quite well, a little a mean, little bard kind well, of character. Yeah, you, besides being a writer, you're certainly a bard, and and you, I mean, your stories are are interesting, entertaining, and antidotal and and i think they're purposeful um i love i love the stories that other people tell too as i get older i'm i'm very i very much want to sit with people and listen to their stories you know we had that one Mm -hmm. incident where um i'll try to make this brief but it was so such a weird moment i'm not a morning person at all and um one time we had to get to the airport early when i was on a book tour and uh, my publisher sent a limo back in the days when that was happening, <laughs> a long time ago, uh, to take me to the airport. So uh, we had to get up early. We ran out, and uh, Stephanie made me get in the front seat with the with the driver. With the driver, and she climbed into the back, which is against my protocol. Well, it, well, in all fairness, it was a Lincoln Continental. It wasn't like a stretch limo. But yeah, it was. You know, so right. It, right. Yeah. They sent the car. Right. Well, I just thought it was weird. So anyway, I'm in the front seat with this guy. I haven't had any coffee, <laughs> and he starts talking. Now, he's an older gentleman. Yeah. Now, that's not usually safe. People aren't safe talking to me before coffee. Um, but I began to listen to him, and um, he told me in the hour and a half ride to the airport his entire life story. Um, he told me about his wife that he married right before World War II and how he had to leave her behind when he went to the war. He talked about how the, she survived on the kindness of strangers. And he talked about his first house he bought and his kids, how he raised them and what they went on to become. And and he just went on and on and on. And, and when he dropped us at the airport, Stephanie looked at me and she goes, oh, I'm so sorry. She goes, that must have been really hard for you and I looked at her and I said you know what I said I think that was the most spiritual moment I've ever had in my life and she like laughed and she goes really and I said yeah I don't know why but I said but that man a total stranger sharing the joys and sorrows of his life with me during an hour and a half in the car 
touched me on some level. It still does when I talk. I still get misty-eyed when I talk about it, and I don't really know why, but it was a turning point for me. It was a turning point. I remember that. Yeah, yeah to yeah. listen to other people. Yeah. I mean, it was so yeah. moving, and yet, you know, I mean, I, most people would have went, you know, what the fuck, you know, but it changed me, and, and I'm really glad it did. They wouldn't have said it on radio, though. They wouldn't have said it on radio because you're not allowed to say that, but then yeah. You have to what the heck, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, I'm going to bring up this subject, and it, it's not completely relative to witchcraft. However, it is relative to your life only because recently it was brought to the attention of the public, and it was very annoying to me because the um, person, persons who felt they were exposing this mm. um, were just gleeful and they were trying to paint a picture of you that didn't exist. And so I would like you in your own words to address that, to make sure that in your own words it's being said and that was your first marriage. Oh yeah, that was bizarre. Yeah. It's nobody bus- it's nobody's yeah. business but yours. Yeah. But somebody else mm. made it their business and they put it all out there um, accusing uh, you of things that are yeah. very untrue, and so I'd like you to address that. Yeah, sure. Um, it, it was a weird thing. You know, people do, when you're a public figure, people like to attack you, and um, in this particular case, there were several individuals who took it upon themselves to um, try and uh, tarnish my reputation, mm-hmm. attack my personal character, my ethics, and whatnot, uh, for their own personal gain, and, and that's sad, and it really says more about them than it says about anyone else. But what Stephanie's talking about is um, in uh, high school, I fell in love with a young girl um, who was 15 years old. I was 18. And um, we were... That was in the late 60s? Yeah, it was in the 60s. Yeah. Um, and uh, we really wanted to be together. We really believed we were in love. You know, looking back now as a as an adult, you know, I, it's debatable <laughs> on one level. But we, we truly believed it. And I, I truly believed that I was in love with her. And um, she um, became pregnant. And uh, back in those days, uh, the right thing to do was to, to marry them. That, that was the honorable thing as a male in the 60s and um, because she was 15 and I was 18 we had to go before a judge and get parents permission on both sides to marry and uh, there's a long story involved there that wasn't really what my parents wanted and but anyway they they eventually agreed and we we did get married and um, and we had a daughter and um, the marriage didn't last very long I think a couple of years and uh, ended uh, very sadly. But uh, someone uh, took it upon himself to try to make it seem like this was some kind of a pedophile story. You know, he posted these things without mentioning uh, the marriage, I think, in the beginning. He said uh, um, something about, I heard you tried to marry a 15-year-old or you preyed upon a... Uh, are you still doing that? Are you still trying to marry 15-year-olds yeah. now? Yeah. And, you know, really kind of sick stuff. And um, he got, uh, you know, some Internet exposure for that. And he worked with a certain um, 
Italian woman who saw that uh, to her advantage to uh, to malign my character. So you know, she sort of allowed him and encouraged him to do that, and and that went on and, and hooked up with some other things. Uh, mm-hmm. Then some people decided to uh, out my legal name, which I've always protected. Um, my name, Raven Gramasi, is a pseudonym. Raven and Gramasi are not real legal names. Uh, my mother was Italian. My dad was German and Scott. Um, I've always contracted, uh, obviously, under my legal name, which is not Raven Gramasi. So a lot of people knew in the genre my, my legal name, uh, but they were honor-bound to keep it uh, to themselves. Well, that got broken. One, uh, one person, the same guy that did the pedophile story, um, he first said my name, but he didn't have very much exposure, so it had very little impact. But then another individual who had a wider following decided to uh, publicize. He insists that he didn't out my name because someone already had, but most people didn't know what it was. So he, he chose to publicize my name and, and, still then, and, and still does. And um, he gets some joy out of that. I'm not sure what. Um, so, yeah, that, that was uh, an interesting uh, time. And um, then I got uh, came down with uh, cancer, and uh, he also chose to uh, publicly mock that as well. So he, he's an interesting character, and I, I think we probably said enough about uh, Yeah, that, about that, that wasn't where I wanted to go anyway, well. but that's where you went. So anyway, getting back to that first thing, um, so why don't we take a break? And we'll come back, and I want to talk to you about um, when you first entered Wicca and Witchcraft, uh, the Wiccan and and Witchcraft community, and then where that led you, um, where that took place, how that took place, and then where that led you. Because, um, unfortunately, that is also being, um, uh, there's misinformation about that and it is being targeted as well. So I think, again, in your own words, that it would be a good mm-hmm. thing for you sure. to clarify that, um, which is part of, of course, your witchcraft path and your witchcraft yeah. story. Mm-hmm. So um, we're going to take a break right now, and we are going to play a beautiful song by the group Fawn, the German group Fawn, called Him to Pan, which we feel is very appropriate for the Beltane season. So please stay with us. There's lots more to come. And um, we look forward to having you join us again after the break. Sounds good. We'll see you when we come back. Hear you when we come back. We'll talk to you when we come back. Okay. The green wood in this grove, neath the vexing moon above us. Yes, clear float sweet and low. Yes, clear float sweet and low. Follow the dance, he's reading. Circle around, the fire's glow. Find the grove 
talk about your uh, the writings that you put when you uh, first entered into the witchcraft and Wiccan community in '69. Now I know you've mentioned that before when we mm-hmm. talked about it, but um, it would be nice just to reiterate what what happened at that time and um, you know how you came to uh, be connected. Yeah, you know, growing up there, there wasn't really anyone, you know, that I was meeting friends and neighbors and things like that that were doing anything like, you know, what I was doing on my own. And um, I sort of longed for that type of companionship, people closer to my old, my own age um, to hang out with and do things with and I was never free to discuss any of this and certainly never saw anyone interested in anything. I think the closest thing there was was a friend of mine was very interested in um, horror movies, vampires and werewolves and stuff like that. And, and we connected on one level with that, but certainly it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a witchcraft kind of connection. And then one day, uh, summer 1969, I was 18 years old. I stumbled uh, upon a, a shop in Old Town, San Diego, called Foose Pantry. It was a tea shop slash herb shop, and um, I remember finding some herbs that uh, I, I had wanted to use, and so I bought off this, you know, five or six different herbs and took them to the counter. And the woman was looking at them and adding them up, and all of a sudden she looked up at me and she said, "These won't make very good teas." And sort of shrugged my shoulders and she gave me a little sort of knowing look, smile, and said, but they would be good for, and she pauses and then she goes, other things. (laughs) And I went, hmm. Well, that intrigued me and, you know, eventually I would go back and, you know, try to strike up conversations with her and buy some herbs. One day she told me to come back at closing time. There was something she wanted to show me. And that was very intriguing. And so I went back, and uh, what she ended up showing me was an altar in the uh, back room, in the storage room that she had back there. And it, it looked similar to things that I had worked with. And so then she began to tell me about Wicca. And uh, at the time, that wasn't something I was familiar with. Did she use that word? Wicca? Yeah, she used yeah. the word Wicca. Uh-huh. Uh, she also used the word witchcraft, but she tossed that one out first. And then later we switched. But she back in the... 60s, Wiccan and witchcraft were the same thing. We use the words interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Um, but she threw that one out first, I think, just to see if I knew something that she knew and I didn't. And later on, when witchcraft came up, then we had a commonality. Um, so she introduced me to uh, a man who owned a, not owned, he managed a, uh, a bookstore called Oracle Books. And uh, she introduced me to him. He belonged to a coven in San Diego. Through him, I was introduced to a woman who went by the title of Lady Heather. And she ran a coven, and later on I was, uh, I studied, and then I was eventually initiated into her system. Um, so that's kind of how I broke into the Wiccan community at large, yeah, the Wiccan witchcraft community at large. And, were a lot they, of secrecy back then in those days. It was hard to get in. Were they, were they celebrating the Sabbath and the moons and so forth? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they were. Yeah. In a very crude way. It wasn't as formal as what we find today. Uh-huh. Um, were there 
factions of witches in San Diego at that time? Or? Yeah. yeah. There, there were several established covens, none of which got along with each other. Um, there <laughs> were uh, lots of uh, people calling themselves witches who had no training, no initiation. Um, really? Yeah. Wow. Um, um, so it was hard to sort out, you know, who was who and what was what. Right. But back in the 60s, it was all about power and pretense, you know, and people uh, pretended to power a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, they would uh, try to make you think that they were very witchy, very powerful, and they would act mysterious, and, you know, there was a lot of games going on. And You, you should tell that story about the guy mm-hmm. who had the electrical thing. In oh, the yeah. Out, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, people used a lot of tricks, and uh, this this uh, one time, this, uh, these young women were telling me the story about this, this master, you know, who was, uh, he was some kind of witch from a past life who uh, was inhabiting the body of this uh, guy. <laughs> and so they were telling me the story and I'm, you know, I'm, my training has always been balanced. So I'm, I'm, I wouldn't call myself skeptical, but I wait. You know, I, I listen for the data, I, and I wait for my uh, opinion. So they're telling me all this, and, and and they said, you know, he's so powerful. You know, when he touches your hand, you can feel an electrical tingle. And I said, you can feel an actual electrical tingle? And they go, yeah, it's the actual electricity. I thought it was interesting. Um, now, I've done stage magic since early teens. And I know a lot of tricks, and um, some of them do involve electricity. So at the time, I I looked at one of the women, and I said, tell me, um, if you remember, I said, did this ever happen to you when he wore short sleeves, or was it always when he had long sleeves? And she says, well, hmm. She says, well, yeah, come to think of it. Yeah, he's always had either a jacket or a sweater or something on. I said, oh, okay. They go, why? And I said, I'm just curious. Um... So one day, one of the guys comes to me and he says, um, he says, yeah, he told me that if ever we needed him, all we had to do was say these three words. I don't remember what the words were, but they were words of invocation. And he would materialize in front of them, wherever they were. But to back up a little bit, the all of the people that were enthralled with this guy told me that they weren't allowed to call his house. And they weren't allowed to call and talk to his wife. That was forbidden because the witch that inhabited <laughs> the body was different than the guy that was married to the woman in, <laughs> in the house, and they didn't want any confusion. I bet. So anyway, these are the backstories. <laughs> so one day the guy decides, after my taunting uh, and skepticism, um, he decides to evoke the guy. So he's in the park in San Diego, and he calls out the guy's name, and nothing happens. So the next day or two, he goes and he confronts the guy, and he says, I, I did what you asked. I said the words, and, you know, you, you didn't manifest. And the guy goes, yes, I know I heard you, but you didn't have enough faith. And so I was teaching you a lesson that you have to have more faith in order for me to, to manifest. Well, then it turned out that apparently, according to the hereditary witch spirit inside the man, um, it takes a lot of energy for him to possess the body. So 
So he has to recharge this energy. So the uh, girls were telling me that he had a schedule of uh, where they would um, accommodate him sexually to make sure he was nice and charged energetically so that he wouldn't lose hold of the, the body. So they would uh, they had a weekly schedule where they would rotate and uh, oh, my Lord. the guy was living high on the hog there till I came along. <laughs> and I asked way too many questions. I pointed at things. I suggested lack of ethics here and there. And uh, eventually the eyes began to open and they all turned on him. And lo and behold, and um, you know I was the bad guy, of course. Um, but yeah, that was a that was a fun story. I remember that one. Oh boy! Yeah. Oh boy! So, um, as you where so so where did that lead you to after you had been a part of that community? Where where did that lead you to once you? Mm. I mean, as you were growing older. Yeah. Into your. Well, I think the 20s, next, people started asking me to teach. Basically, is what started to happen. And I really didn't want to, and uh, but I would I would share information I had with people when things would come up, and and they were you know happy that I knew some things that they didn't, and so eventually I found myself informally teaching, yeah. and then eventually some store owners asked me to come, and I started doing that, and, and that took off quite well, and then um, some friends of mine and I decided to try doing a magazine called The Shadow's Edge. Mm-hmm. And it was a very amateurish, <laughs> really funky I thing. Have copies of yeah, that. yeah, yeah, we do. Mm-hmm. Looking back at it, it was the old mimeograph machines, which I'm sure a lot of listeners don't know what that is. And um, we would bind them at the local copy shop, you know, uh, what was it called? Uh, copy shops back in the day. Quick, oh, quick, oh. Print, quick, quick. I don't know. I would think Kinko's. Was Kinko's, yeah. Was it Kinko's? Quick print, oh, Kinko's. Yeah. Copy girls, yeah, all kinds of different places. Yeah. And they they would buy them, spiral bound them. We'd print a hundred of them, and we try to sell them. You know, we sold most of them over the course of time that we had the magazine. And every now and then they still show up. Someone will come with a book signing, and we also I also self published a book called Book of Ways, volumes one and two during that period. And they well, were also how, how old were you then? Oh gosh. I want to 20s? say late 20s, yeah. maybe early 30s. So, um, how would you, how did you identify as a witch then? I mean, were you, were you Strega? Were you Wiccan? Were you, you know, what was your practice yeah. kind of oriented around? Was it community? Because I know that when, before I met you, I was practicing a Wiccan tradition, and then I did the Strega. So, you know, the precursors to that. Right. Uh, were there for me to fit in to right. community because I was looking for community after being a solitaire. Right. Yeah, I was the Strega guy and I was the Italian witch character. And um, that's what I taught. I also would occasionally teach some classes on like Wicca 101, you know, stuff. Oh, but yeah. That's but when I met you. That's when you came out. Yeah. But by and large, I was the Italian guy uh, teaching Italian witchcraft. Did you, I know that, uh, were you initiating then, or no, you no. didn't have a group or anything, you were just doing those no. magazines and teaching right. freelance, so to speak. Right. Right. Um, I didn't start initiating. Still in San Diego. Still in San Diego. Right. 
I think the last class I, sh- I taught was at Eel's Enchantment Shop. And um, that's where I met some people who later on became um, authors, uh, famous authors. Mm-hmm. They weren't at the time. They were taking my classes. And uh, from there, um, I did form a coven with some of the people that graduated from the class. Yeah. And I initiated them. Okay, now before we go there, I want to go back to the Blue Book. Oh, yeah. Because the Blue Book has become very famous. Well, underground fame. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, of course, <laughs> underground fame. Uh-huh. Yeah, because you only printed a certain number of I them. I think 500 total. Right, and then people took it upon themselves, and they went and made copies and more copies and more copies. Right. However, uh, since then, we have republished, uh, we have self-published the Blue Book, uh, which is called the Book of Ways, Volume 1 and 2, in one book. We have that for sale on Raven's Law. And it's, it's a really nice book, and David was a little bit hesitant to want to self-publish it in its, in its uh, old, form. old form, but as you know, we, a friend of ours and I convinced him that it would really be virtuous to keep it in that way just to show... Sort of a historical yeah. format. Well, but plus it's a very useful book. It's a very practical book. Yeah. It's just that I wasn't very, I wasn't really a very good writer back at that time, and my grammar sucked. My spelling wasn't what it should have been. And so there's a lot of things in that book that I look at and I cringe, you know, and I go, oh, my gosh, you know. Yeah. But uh, you were, it's still a good hand-on. In your tw- late 20s, early 30s? Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and like I said, you know, we moved a lot when I was a kid state to state. So my education had no linear connection. Yeah. Some schools were ahead, some were behind. So the connective pieces of education weren't yeah. there for me. And so... I sucked at math and English because I didn't have the continuity, the continuity of right. how you get there right. um, because I moved all over the country. So that was hard on me, and uh, it shows up in that particular book. Okay, so let's let's go then from your 20s, mm-hmm. and um, the, you're, you're saying that you were teaching, you did some of your first writings, you did right. The Shadow's Edge, you did The Book of Ways, you did The Book of the Holy Strega? Yeah. Those were all self-published. Then that led you into your 30s. And during the decade of the 30s, typically people, you know, feel more empowered by their past. So what was the most significant thing about your 30s in the craft? I mean, what did you bring to that in your 30s? How did you? Right. Yeah, that was the 1980s. And um, it it was a powerful time for me because I, I had gained credibility, you know, within the community and people looked to me for for things and um, I was very happy to teach and and uh, attend local events and stuff, you know, and uh, I felt much more confident just as a, as, a, as a man, as a person in my 30s than I did in my 20s. Um, a lot of the projects that I had um, going, I felt really good about, but and I was reading um, I continued to read the old masters' uh, occult books, uh, the oldest ones I could find, and I started reading um, Greek philosophy and metaphysical philosophy, um, a lot of the uh, theosophical stuff, Rosicrucian material. In fact, I think I was in the Rosicrucians during my 30s well, that's, training. You know, information is power. Yeah, and, 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 and I don't mean power, you know, powerful, but I mean it's 
knowledge. Well, it's empowering. It is empowering. Exactly. And it, it made me feel like I had a good grasp on things. It, it helped me explore things that really did. I probably wouldn't have otherwise, yeah. you know. Yeah. And uh, I became, I would say I refined my occultism during my 30s. And um, the 30s were nice because I, I wasn't a know-it-all like I was in my 20s. My 20s, I thought I knew more than I did, and I think that's probably true of being in your 20s now you in said, general. But uh, you said you went on to initiate mm-hmm. people. Was that in the 30s? Yeah. And and what system was that? Strega. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think if there. Yeah, no, Strega. Uh, I was initiated into a couple other systems as well. Um, one in particular was because the the guy was a Pictish Gaelic and a close friend of mine who I had initiated into the Strega was going overseas. He was in the Navy or had been in the Navy and he was going over there and was going to work on the radar of the Navy ships in a war zone and he was worried something might happen to him. So he wanted to turn his Book of Shadows over to me, but he couldn't unless I was third degree. So he ended up initiating me into the Pictish Gaelic tradition and giving me his his book of shadows and sailing away uh, to the Middle East at the time, um, and uh, so there were things like that that you know were initiatory experiences. But I stayed with the Strega, and I was teaching and initiating other people into it. Now, can you talk a little bit about your Strega history? Well, it's it's something I like to talk lots about these days only because it seems so distant now and my world is so different. Mm -hmm. But I I certainly have a love for it. I mean, the stories I was told, you know, the stories of Aradia, my memories of what a full moon ritual was like, the chanting, the mysticism of it, the old ways, the old feel of it, um, the old gods, you know. um, These were things that, that I was trained trained in and was able to somehow channel through to others um, through the initiation. You know, in in the lineage uh, of which I still call myself a lineage bearer of the of Italian witchcraft, although it's not what I practice anymore, um, you have a chance at around age 13 to decide whether you are going to do that or you're not. I think that's too early to make that decision, but that was my experience. Um, I chose to be taught the ways. I, told, I chose to make that my path. And um, that was really the way it was up until 18, 19 years old when I entered the working community. And I set it aside, I think, in many ways um, to, to be with people my own age, to have that experience, to have fun. Um, but I, I came back to it. I, I did that often. I would... I would come back home to the Strega path, and um, that went on and on and on, probably until this last time, 2004, something like that. Um, I haven't been back since. It's a a beautiful tradition. Strega is. It is. But again, what we practice now is much more primal, and the Strega, not that it was um, stagnating or... or, or, um, the other word I want to use, but it's certainly a, a specific cultural expression right. of the craft, and it is a beautiful tradition. We'll talk about that a little bit later. 
because um, I want to get back to your 30s. Now, you mentioned earlier about two significant authors who went on to become your initiates. And mm-hmm. I think that you should... Well, it's a known thing in some circles, and then in other circles, it's something they don't accept. Uh, but truth is truth, regardless. Yeah, I had um, uh, two two characters, and they were indeed characters, and later became friends, and then initiates, uh, who came to my classes. And one of them was Scott Cunningham, and the other was Donald Michael Craig. At the time, they were still learning stuff, and uh, they weren't authors at the time. And um, they took a couple of my courses um, in, in person. And like I said, we became close friends. We started hanging out. And uh, Don and Scott eventually moved in together in um, San Diego. I would visit them frequently. They would visit my house. And uh, they eventually were initiated into the Aresian tradition, which is one I created based upon the Italian witchcraft. I mixed it with some Wiccan things. In fact, I write about that in the introduction to my first book, Ways of Estrega, to show that that's what I was doing. But lots of people I discovered, unfortunately, don't read introductions. They just start at chapter one, and therefore they didn't realize that I had said that the book was a mixture of Wicca and Italian witchcraft, and they lamb-blasted an Amazon.com reviews and the Internet saying I was trying to passed this off as pure Italian, but clearly there were wicked elements in it. And, yes, well, and, clearly and, I wrote about that. I didn't say, well, had you read the whole book and not skimmed read it, you'd have known what you're talking about, but you clearly don't. So, you know, uh, annoying, you know, just annoying stuff like that. But, yeah, Scott was an interesting character. He, he loved puns. He would pun all the time until you wanted to snap his neck. Uh, <laughs> uh, he, was, he was a fun guy. Very traditional about herbs but not traditional about witchcraft at all. And that's where we kind of clashed and, and eventually parted ways um, because we, we would clash a lot over traditional witchcraft uh, versus intuitive and self-expressive stuff. And uh, we decided at one point it was more important for us to remain friends. Um, so we, uh, he, he left the tradition and, and uh, he went off later, well, a couple of years later, I think, and uh, wrote his first book. Mm-hmm. Now, I know um, you did study with Lady Sarah Cunningham, yes? Mm-hmm. When was that time? Oh, gosh, that was... Uh, 30s as well? I'm thinking it was the 70s, mid to oh. late 70s. I'd have to go back and look at it. I, my memory's not as clear. Mm-hmm. She was a very well-known witch in the L.A. area in California, and uh, she, she moved to... Uh, uh, Oregon, Wolf Creek, Oregon, and that's where I started taking courses uh, through the mail from her. And then she moved to Boulder Creek, no, Colorado, yeah. Boulder Creek? Yeah, Bo- Boulder either Creek? Boulder Creek or Boulder. Boulder, Colorado. yeah, it was Boulder, Colorado. Yeah. And she taught there for a while, and she taught uh, the Kabbalah, and I took courses from her in the Kabbalah. And she she was amazing. She She made these incenses, which were the best I've ever known. I've never had before since anything like what she could make. And to the point where um, one time my brother and I were doing a ritual in uh, our house and uh, he picked up some, some incense and he put it on the charcoal burner 
as we were proceeding with the ritual, and we both saw something move on the altar, and we looked down. And climbing out of the incense burner, we had a charcoal burner with the you know raw herbal and, and um, powder. Uh, no uh, resin. 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 Um, starting to smoke, and out of this climbs the scarab of the beetle. Climbs out of the burner and plops down onto the altar and starts walking across the altar, and we're staring at it. And I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> trying to rationalize it. I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> wow, that poor beetle has been packed in herbal incense that probably came from Egypt, you know, and the poor thing has been in there and, and somehow survived and now, you know, the fire started to burn and he's trying to get out of there and and as I'm thinking this and my brother's pointing at it and I'm looking at it, it dematerializes about halfway across the altar, literally before our eyes dematerialized. A beetle about the size of um I don't know, I'd say well, are big. three They're inches like, long, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Two, two, three inches long. Inch and a half wide. Uh-huh. Um, that was very profound. And I wrote to her, and I told her about the experience. And she, the typical Lady Sarah fashion, she wrote back to me, and she said, and I'm sorry, what is your point? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Because oh, yeah. it was her incense. Right. Um, oh, and I had—I forgot to mention—it was Kefera incense, which is the Egyptian scarab beetle god. Oh my gosh. That—that um, uh, that was important to the story, and I apparently almost left it out. So when I wrote to her, I said, "Yeah, we put the Kefera incense on the thing, and the scarab beetle climbs up." And she's like, "And your point is what?" <laughs> <laughs> Those were the magical days that I loved so much. So, so have we? Have you talked about what was the most significant thing about your 30s in the craft? And is there any one thing that that's I think out? it just being a pivotal moment, you know. I, you really, I felt I had arrived yeah. at something. I felt I, I felt I understood what what I pretended to be in my 20s. I began to realize I had become or was becoming in, your 30s. in my 30s yeah. as far as my witchery, mm-hmm. my witchdom, my occult knowledge, my let's say, powers, um, psychic abilities. Uh, My 40s was a time of realizing that, okay, anything I ever thought I would be, this is what I ended up as. You know, my 40s were like accepting who and what I had become and being okay with it. I think the 40s does that. Well, and, and in your 40s, that was when you became professionally published. So when, mm. when that happened, you became professionally published, what... How, how did that affect your world in terms of witchcraft and self-identity after that yeah. happened? That was a huge change because I I turned from being primarily, you know, running small groups, being my own witch, um, to being thrust into the public arena more. You know, when you have a book published, you're no longer a local person and no longer the San Diego witch guy or, you know, Raven in San Diego, all of a sudden you're, the spotlight's on you and, and literally over the course of time, you become known not only in your country, but in other countries and you become kind of an international name. And that's a kind of a weird, it's a weird thing to think about that. And um, so it, it made me, it made me adapt to that. You know, it made me try to have to live that life and be that guy. And I, I can remember, I can remember going to events, 
you know, that I knew people were going to be there and they were coming to see this Raven Grimasi character that uh, I had created, you know. And uh, sometimes I don't want to be Raven Grimasi. I just want to be me, you know. But at these events, you have to be that guy. And um, and I would think, you know, what? Well, how should I be, you know? Should I be what they expect me to be? Should I put on a... A demeanor? Should I should yeah, I hold right. myself in a certain you know yeah. witchery space? You know, um, or should I just be me with you know Raven Grimaldi uh, sprinkles on me? You know, well, yeah. and uh, well, well, but it's interesting because I remember in my early one of the early ritual uh, festivals that I went to, uh, I don't think my picture was around. In fact, some people thought I was a woman in the early days because my picture wasn't wasn't readily available at the time. Uh, not outside of San Diego. And I remember one time I was told to go wait to meet the uh, sponsors of this festival um, at this uh, little uh, cabin. And outside of the cabin was a deck, and on the deck were two picnic tables where people were sitting and talking. So I came over and I sat on the picnic tables, and they were talking about witchcraft and magic and paganism and stuff. And I joined in, and we were having a great conversation, sharing and laughing, and I was talking. They had no idea, you know, that I was anybody other than this guy that had come along and sat down. And so we were having this great conversation, and then all of a sudden, well, when all of a sudden, you know, an hour passed maybe, and um, the sponsors, promoters came walking and saw me, and they waved at me and walked up, and, and they, uh, one guy said to one of the guys in his group, he goes, Oh, uh, so-and-so, I want you to meet, you know, our presenter. Uh, this is Raven Gramasi. Oh, Raven, I've been, read your books, you know, really happy. And we had that exchange, and then they, they left. And so I turned back to continue the conversation with all these guys at the table, and dead silence, and they're all looking at me, you know, with this look of whatever on their face. And they did, And one of the guys looked at me and said, Oh, we're really sorry. We have to apologize. We didn't know you were Raven Gramasi. We wouldn't have taken up your time. And I said, oh, no, I said, I was having a great time, you know, talking with you guys. It's been a lot of fun. And they said, oh, no, we're really sorry, you know, Mr. Gramasi. And they all left. They wouldn't play with me anymore. Yeah. Well, and it was weird. It's a weird feeling. And that, that still does happen. Well, that was going to be one of my, my, my questions was, so what, what are the good things that have happened? And what are some of the, you know, the, the takeaways that aren't so good? Well, the good things are, you know, the, the life of an author is a weird thing. I mean, you spend most of your time in your room and you study, typing, creating a manuscript. It takes me months to do that, and as you know, and um, I'm fully immersed in it. And, uh, you know, you often wonder when you're writing, you know, what, what good is this doing? You know, who's going to read it and what are they going to think? Is it usable? Have, yeah, right, you know, and then right. you get letters, you know, where people had very profound uh, experiences. You get people saying thank you. You get people that are happy to see you. It's, it's such a weird but kind of wonderful feeling, you know, to to have people value what you value, you know, which I do. I value my work and what I've learned and what I want to share. And, and to share it is my bliss. And to have people, you know, thank me for sharing it is just yeah. a wondrous thing. <laughs> it's yeah. like, hey, I, I'd be sharing this, you know, regardless of and yet, you know, and I, I can still remember, and I think you remember this incident, I, I was in a low period once and wondering why I do what I do and feeling kind of like, why am I even bothering being an author? And 
and I gave a talk at Pantheacon, a very large convention in California, and I did a Wicca thing, and I did my whole thing of Wicca as I knew it, and talked about its rituals, its magic, and whatnot. And um, when I was walking away, this young girl, I would say in her early 20s, came up to me, and she said, I want to thank you. And I said, for what? And she said, well, she goes, you know, I was wondering if Wicca was my path. And I watched you talk about, listened to you talk about Wicca and how you'd been doing it for 30 years or whatever it was. And she said, you still spoke with such passion and wonder and amazement. And you looked so happy and joyful as you were sharing all these things that you knew. And, and, and I thought to myself, she says, that, wow, if this guy after all those years can still be as excited as I am in learning Wicca new, this is certainly the path for me. And I looked at her, I got a little teary-eyed, I remember, and, and I put my hands on her shoulders and I said, I said, it's really me who has to thank you. And she goes, for what? And I said, because you made me remember why it is why I do what I do. I do it for folks like you. And we both got a little misty-eyed, and I think we hugged and went separate ways. But those are the really uplifting moments when you know you're, what you're doing is right. The downside is, you know, you get people who just hate you for who you you are in the public eye. You know? They, they don't even well, they don't the, even know you. Well, How can they the hate thing, somebody well, they don't know? Because I don't think they genuinely hate you as the human being you are. Because like you said, they don't know you. They hate what I kind of think. What it is after thinking about this for decades, I think they hate that you're doing the thing they wanted to do. They resent you for it. They wanted to be an author. It didn't work out for them. They wanted have a name in the community and it didn't work out for them. I, I never sought fame. I never sought notoriety. I, I just wanted to teach and to share these things and see, you know, if I could help people the way these things helped me. You know, notoriety came, you know, there are some, there are some fun parts of it, but it's not what I wanted. It, it's not what I seek. It's not what I live on. Um, it, it, it can be fun and it can be a pain in the butt at the same time. But people will make up lies about you. They will create and invent things. They'll take a seed of truth and turn it into something really bizarre. Um, well, I, I, they, they'll do a lot of things, and, and I, I, I I'm not sure why. Well, I don't understand how um, if somebody... You're, you're writing a book with information that you want to share on the experience, the research, your practice, all of the years that you've been doing this, and somebody comes along and they want to discredit you, malign you, um, take you down for your, for your work, when all it is is your work. Right. It's not diminishing their work. Well, they think it is. It's though. not diminishing yeah. who they are. They think it does. They, it's not diminishing their practice, but... Somehow, no, no, they think it, does. it all becomes about that rather than just taking, you know, what is it when you say uh, the the wheat take the sort the chaff from the grain yeah, and keep I mean, what's worth keeping. I mean, you're not making people do anything or believe no. anything, or you you've never ever said that this is the truth. Right, this the, is the, the one empirical. And only, yeah, yes, no. you have never 
I have never, ever, ever heard you ever say that about well, any of it. Let me address that. Yes. Be my guest. <laughs> I think, like I started to say, there are people that do resent, and there are people who don't like my truths, and uh, and it, it makes them, I don't know if it makes them question their own. Um, it, it's a difficult thing to sort out, but uh, I can remember this one guy, and you were there at the time. We were at a uh, convention, and this guy comes up to me, and he looks just mad as hell. And he comes up to me, and he says in a very harsh way, he goes, are you Raven Gramasi? And I didn't want to say yes, I mean, you know. And uh, I, I said, yeah. And he goes, he starts almost growling. I mean, he's like, he goes, your book. And he's talking about my Italian books. And he goes, my father, your book, my father. And he kept repeating this and getting madder and madder. And the veins were popping out on his neck. His thought face was, was getting red. I thought he was going to have a stroke. And they both thought he was going to have a stroke. Yeah. And he couldn't talk. I said, what's the matter? He couldn't, he couldn't talk to me about it. And so I said to him, I said, look, you know, I don't know what got you so upset about my books or what maybe got your father upset about my book or what you're upset about. But I said, let me just offer you this and leave you with this um, because we're clearly not going to talk. So let me leave you with this. I am just an author and my book is just my opinion. And I can't see any valid reason why me as an author should have any bearing on your life and who and what you are and what you believe in. I'm just an author and an author's book is just an author's opinion. I'm going to leave you with that and hope hope that helps you out. And I turned away and left. Uh, but the rest of the festival weekend, every time he'd see me, he'd stop, he'd clench his glare. fist and stick his head out towards me and his neck out towards me and he'd glare and glare and then he'd walk away. So I never knew what was upsetting him, but something clearly did. And people would create stories and I don't know if someone created the story that pissed him off or, but weird things come and then people get mad at the character that's being created. And I think that that's where a lot of my my uh, people that like to lamb blast me. I think they get mad at the character that's being painted. Uh, one example, which you, you know about, is when I was teaching the Strega. This is fascinating. There was a, a group, an anti-Gramasi group called Streganaria Italiano. Italiano. Uh, and um, they were oh, really hated the Gramasi. And um, Every now and then, people would come to me, and, and I would turn them away because I didn't think they were, tra- they were uh, trainable. Or they had clear emotional issues, psychological issues. So there were, over the course of time, you know, maybe up to a dozen people that were very disappointed and very hurt yeah. Yeah. and thought they had put a lot of effort into uh, um, impressing me uh, so that I would initiate them, and, and, and I didn't. And they felt that, that I had been emotionally abusive uh, in some way because I wouldn't um, do that. Uh, one woman actually wrote me and said she was moving 3,000 miles to come and be in my area so that I could teach her. And I wrote back and I said, I don't know you, and I'm not, I'm not in any position to say I can teach you. So, you know, you need to communicate with me long before you make that move. Well, six weeks later, she moves, says, I'm here, ready to be taught. Yep. 
Well, it didn't work out. And so she went around and told the woes and tales of how the evil Gramasi had been so mean to her and she'd picked up her life and moved 3,000 miles and I wouldn't give her the time of day. And, you know, and she had she had emotional issues. People so anyway, the, the Stregas, you know, about a year later or so, the Stregas people, Stregan area people wrote this weird thing on the internet. And they said that I had a mute hat that I had emotionally abused so many people that they had built a rehab center, <laughs> a rehab That's center so to, to treat these poor people that were coming by the droves, you know. Uh, buses were bringing them in. <laughs> Helicopters were landing them on the roof, you know. There were so many of these people that had been abused by Gramasi that they had professional uh, psychiatrists and counselors there, you know. And it was so laughable to me, but people believed it. I mean, a handful of people believed it, but, um, you know, it's, it just boggles the mind that they would do that. And one of my favorite stories is when the uh, Strega book was first published, Ways of the Strega. Um, it sold quite well, but not as well as Llewellyn had hoped. So uh, it was actually Stephanie that suggested to them that they change the name to Italian Witchcraft. Because that's a very common thing. People know what that yeah, means. Yeah, people didn't know Strega, what Strega, you know, yeah. Before I was writing, a lot of people really didn't know, yeah. uh, like they do today, about Strega. So my book was titled Strega, and Llewellyn thought, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's retitle it, see if we can't boost the sales. So they retitled it Italian Witchcraft. So that's the true story. Now, the other story, of course, is with the anti-Gramasi folks who took that story, <laughs> and they turned it into this that the real Strega, whoever they are, in Italy, um, had learned through the grapevine that I had that the title had been changed from Ways of the Strega to Italian Witchcraft. And um, uh, no, no, that's not how it happened. They, oh, no, no, it was Ways of the Strega. Yes, this is it. It was Ways of the Strega, and they... These witches came from all the hills and valleys and cities of Italy. Congregated. Bearing in mind that there is no central authority that operates Italian witchcraft. And they descended, you know, finding ways to send emails and phone calls. And they, they pounded bombarded. Llewellyn. Bombarded Llewellyn. Yeah. Um, and, and, and forced Llewellyn to change the title of the book from Ways of the Strega to Italian Witchcraft. You know, like that would be better. <laughs> like that would solve the problem of this book being phony in their eyes. and But the truth is that the, the sales story is actually the truth. And uh-huh. Stephanie pitched Italian witchcraft. They liked it, and they changed it. But you can see how how people will take these stories. And so I think that it's the character that these people begin to hate. You know, it's this guy who wrote this book that they think, you know, is the real stuff, and that only the real witches in Italy know the real stuff. So they hate the guy that's painted in the story. They don't know me, my character, my authenticity. They don't know my family. And I often have to chuckle because I, I say to myself, there are people who actually know me. There are people who live with me. There are I have family members, and everybody hears me talk. So why would people who actually know me, live with me, grew up with me, allow me to get away with bullshit and lies and make up stories and still be my friends and hang out with me. As I said, well, why the, would they do that? As I said at the beginning of the show, that is just BS. 
But I won't spend a lot of time on that. But that's just I I think but that, that but that is part of your history, and it's frustrating it is, because it is. because it, it's nonsensical and. When people, it's a reality. Just, I call it the gunfighter syndrome. Well, that and, and and here's the other thing too. As you were just saying back, like for instance, that woman who 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 moved three thousand miles. Mm-hmm. Their their feelings are hurt right. by an expectation that was completely unrealistic. Right. Because they're not well. They're not thinking rationally. Right. And so that's when it goes awry, or that people project onto you a relationship that really doesn't exist or that you are not aware of. For instance, I know an individual who has painted our relationship in such a way that I didn't realize that was the way they felt, had no idea. And so the reciprocation was not, the expectation of a reciprocation was not, yeah. In line with their feelings, right. and I regret those things because it's not intentional. Right. I'm just being me. I mean, right. they put they, and with you, they just put they, they can put so much on us because, as you said, we're public figures, and you in particular, as an author, there's a lot of put on you in that way, a lot of projection put onto you. Right. And it's never, Raven is not like that. He is a gentle, kind, compassionate soul. He would never intentionally hurt you. He might call you to task because he does so to me, his <laughs> wife of, of, and, and companion of 20 years. And it's not pretty. Who wants to, who wants to step up and say, oh, man, you know, wow, that's, that's, you know, that's something that should really be addressed in one's own mind, not, not by the, the character, like he was saying, well, that I has think, been described. Well, I, I think that sometimes people need a bad guy yeah. to make their story important, and they'll invent a bad guy. And, and uh, what better target than a public figure? You know, if you can take that person down, uh, you know, they think that it lifts them up. Okay, so let's. I, I don't know that we're gonna completely finish it because I really want. I, I want to. I want to really cover all of this, in a, and I don't want to rush through it. So we may. Well, what have we got left to talk about? We have about? the 50s, the 60s, and then another topic uh-huh. I want to address. So here's the thing: if we don't get through it, let's start the next show, and we'll complete that segment, and then we can go on to do. Um, mm, let me see something here. Then we can go on to do um, uh, more show, another show. Again. Um, yeah. yeah, and I, I want to stay away from the negative stuff now. We've we've touched on that. I think we made our point uh, pretty much, unless there's something that is necessary to mention. I, I think I'd rather just talk about the the cool things of uh, the witchery experience. Yeah, that's fine. But I mean, it is all part and parcel, it is, my dear. Maybe being one that you are. Well, if there's something significant, fine. But yeah. All right, we will agree to agree. Okay, that's then um, going from your 40s then, which was, again, that was when you became professionally published. And your first book published was Ways of the Strega, right. retitled Italian Witchcraft. Right. But you have gone on to write, I think, 20 more books Yeah. under 20, two different publishers as well as self-publishing some right, books. Right. So um, 
along with all of those um, experiences. Uh, you also were doing appearances because you you were you became in demand and your workshops, as I can attest to, were very um, very good. I was trying to think of a very poetic word, but they were just fantastic. I mean, that was how I first came in contact with you. I went to a workshop, and when you were talking, describing how should you be, you know, how should you create the persona, you were just yourself. You were just talking about what you knew about, and the way that you were communicating it made it so accessible, the concepts and the ideas, and you've continued to go on and do that. And I think one of the things that I'd like you to talk about is your own evolution in the idea of who Raven Gramasi has become. Mm-hmm. Because you, you've said, you wrote Wiccan Mysteries some 20 years ago? twenty More than 20 years ago. Was it 20 years ago? 18 years ago. Because it was mm-hmm. 1998. 1998. 20 years ago. Wow, wow. That's shocking. You said that, that now, that that book, you would want to go back and write it. So oh, yeah. what has changed in you Mm-hmm. That you would want to go back and change that book. Now, not that not that that's the impetus, but what has mm-hmm. changed in you now that you're, you know, you, let's talk about your fifties that you were into yeah. your fifties. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. I'm reminded of uh, you know meeting a woman at a at a at a festival who was a psychic and talking with her, and um, she was doing a reading on me, a psychic reading, not a card reading, and. And she uh, said to me, she goes, oh, she goes, you hate mysteries. And I laughed and I, and I jokingly said to her, no, I don't hate mysteries at all. I said, I love them. I said, in fact, I wrote the book Wiccan Mysteries, you know, jokingly, and I laughed. And she goes, oh, no, no, no. She goes, you hate mysteries. She goes, that's why you have to unravel them. You're compelled to unravel them. And it sort of hit me between the eyes because I, I, I am. I mean, that is my thing. It always has been is to go deeper and deeper and try to unravel things. I do that in my own research. Um, When I'm writing a book, um, if I'm looking at a theme and, um, you know, let's say, for example, uh, a plant shows up um, and let's say it's uh, verving and I need it for a particular thing I'm referencing in a spell, I will not stop at just having seen the significance of verving in a spell I will then go on and research everywhere and everything I can find out about vervain from researching it from a botanical point of view, looking for ancient references to it, seeing where it shows up in folklore, studying its physical um, presentation to see if it's suggestive of anything mystical. I'll, I'll look at its seed cycle. I spend a long time of everything I write about anything I ever mention, any tool, any spell, any stone, um, and I will go on and on and on trying to find out absolutely everything there is to know about that and its connection to everything else. And then that leads me to the connections I found to go and explore those things further. So um, what happened to me was I became somebody who really felt the need to assimilate and uh, collect all these things and put it into a cohesive way for people to give people things that I spent decades trying to learn to give that to them in a book where they could learn it in a month two months um, 
my teachers taught me in very isolated, fragmented ways. Very seldom was it a formal course of study. It was usually in the moment and in the setting and in the context. Um, and it took me years and years to learn the things that I now share in my book. But I think it's so cool, you know, that I can teach somebody something through a course of study that may take six months. I can teach them what it took me 30 years to learn. And I think that that's a wonderful thing, you know. So I think that that's what happened. But my my spirituality grew through seeing the realities of the other world, you know, to be exposed all the time. I mean, I've lived this my whole life. And to see these worlds open and to, to encounter beings from other realms that, that communicate, um, it's very humbling. It keeps me balanced in, in being in awe of this world that I've touched and this world that's willing to communicate to me. It's changed me from the 20s know-it-all guy to the sort of confident but yet semi-self-centered 30s character and 40s sort of, you know, teacher guy to someone who still has the wonder of a student, you know, but the ability also to turn around in that moment and teach Mm -hmm. what was passed to me. And some people say that's my gift and... Well, that's mm-hmm. that, that's you. That's the Hierophant. That mm-hmm. your, your five number is the Hierophant, and it is it is the person, it is the student who is able to teach, mm-hmm. and the teacher who is the student. Mm-hmm. So that's. But I, I love that, and and you know where I'm at now is a nice place. You know, it's a combination of my occult studies that I've learned, that I believe I've learned and gained wisdom from. It's a combination of my martial arts training, which taught me internal balance and that I applied to my magical training. And it's part of what still teaches me now, uh, the gods, the other world spirits, the entities of my tradition of Asperger and Willow, and being open to, to, to that as a student. Um, it's just a wonderful feeling um, to be in this headspace right now. So going back to what we were talking about, the 50s part, uh, we traveled around all over the country. We've done workshops and festivals and conferences and uh, lots of stores. And um, tell us a little bit, what was that like for you? I mean, what was that like for you? I know what it was like for me, but what was that like for you? Well, it was, it was hard work. Some people may look at that and think, oh, how cool. How fun. But you always have to be on. You know, the other people at the festival are enjoying the festival. But you as the author presenter, you're there to work and you're there to teach to classes and workshops. You're there to sign books. You're there to answer questions that people have and they come up to you through the entire weekend. And you're always on. I always have to be raving Gramasi the whole time. And it's tiring physically to fly and travel and sleep in different kinds of conditions and... I wonder who that character were, was with me in the hotel. Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, it was, a, it was a kinky Nelosi, <laughs> yeah. Um, the, um, but it, it's a lot of work. People probably don't realize that, but it's very tiring. It's very exhausting. When you come back, you just collapse and for, it takes you like a week well, because you've always, come back. But you've always said that you're not just standing up there talking. Yeah, that's the you're thing. You're doing more than that. 
I'm putting energy, like when I do a workshop, I try to make people feel what I'm teaching, not just teach them talk. I'm using energy, I'm raising energy from my body and I'm moving that through. So I'm, I'm working a lot of energy up there on the stage or podium and it is exhausting. By the time I've done a two hour talk or workshop, I'm very tired and I'll take questions and stuff. And then I try to escape for a while, you know, I'll try to find a place in the festival or convention where I can just get away, you know, have a snack, have a cold drink. Um, but, you know, I do love the people. I, I love to share with them. I love to see the, the smiles and the nods on their faces when I'm teaching. Um, and I like, the, I like them coming up and saying, thank you, that was cool. I mean, as a human being, it doesn't get much better than that, you know, for people to appreciate what you bring to the table, I think that that's an amazing exchange. Well, and, and that's where you hear, too, um, what a difference you've made in people's life, because I have heard that over and over again, that you opened a door for them, that you made a connection for them, that they had an aha moment. I mean, I've heard that over and over again, and I know what that's like because that's what you gave me as well um, were those, you know, pivotal moments of insight. And um, with all your books, what I, I, this is going to be a really hard question. <laughs> what is your favorite book? Mm, people asking that often. I know. Well, well, I mean, I know there's periods that, you know, you were in this headspace and that mm-hmm. headspace, but, you know, what would you consider I, I I probably can't say which is my best. It's almost like saying which of my three daughters is my is, is my favorite favorite. Right. You know, I mean, you you feel about them in different ways. And, and um, but there there are books. There are a few books that I'm more proud of, I guess, than others. Uh-huh. I would definitely say the Grimoire of the Thorn-Blooded Witch. I'm very proud of how that formed and came out. I was very proud of uh, Wicked Mysteries, although I think it needs to be updated. It was written in the 90s, and we know a lot more about what I was writing about as far as Celtic culture. So I would love to be able to uh, update that. Um, But I was proud of the book. I I really liked the scope that it offered. It was uh, fantastic. It is fantastic, yeah. um, Witchcraft and Mystery Tradition. Um, I, I'm proud of because it was sort of a heart and soul writing for me rather than just information and data. Uh, that book's out of print now, sadly. I was going to say, if you... If so you, is what, Wicked Mysteries. But. If, well, I have plenty of copies of Wicked Mysteries. Right, that's good. However, Witchcraft and Mystery Tradition is no longer being published by Llewellyn. However, we have the rights back to it and we will be self-publishing it um, in the future. That's our goal and plan. Yeah. And Wicked Mysteries, I do have copies of that uh, of that uh, version uh, available. Um, so if you find copies of Witchcraft and Mysteries edition, I would buy them if they're at a reasonable price. Yeah. Unfortunately, we had decks that uh, went out of print, and the pirates bought them all up, and they're charging like 300 to $500. I've seen them on the Internet, and we don't get a dime of that, uh, by the way. Um, so if you see these uh, decks going for huge amounts of money, bear in mind you're putting money in the pockets of pirates when you buy those. Well, I still feel that there's more to glean from you. Mm-hmm. Let's do a part two. Sure. Yeah, we'll do a part two. Next so um, 
in uh, that'll be uh, let's see here. Let me quickly access my uh, device, and I will say our next show is going to be on the 16th of May. We will continue this show, um, Raven Gomasi in his own words. The first half of the show, we'll, we'll finish up with that topic, and then we'll have another topic for the second half of the show. Yeah. Um, it would be nice to have callers, yeah, I noticed there wasn't anybody in the chat room tonight. Yeah. Um, we're trying to get back on track, folks. Uh, it, it's it's not always under our control, unfortunately. Right. So we miss a show here and there, and I, I, I think that that uh, yeah. may have, have put a little bump in the road for people, but uh, hang in. The best is yet to come. Yeah, we do apologize for that. But, um, again, I wanted to mention um, about uh, Belting uh, that's coming up. And that is going to be at the, in, at, uh, oh, for goodness sakes, Palea Winery in, um, I wanted to find it here because I just, just had it, uh, the whole event. Uh, oh, I know, I guess, let's see, it's got to be on my own. You're not going to believe this, but I'm using my electronics right now to um, search for that because I'm a crazy woman. Uh, that'll be Saturday. We've and only I, got it, five minutes left. It starts at 9 o'clock and goes all day. So we hope to see you out there. Um, in the meantime, um, as I said, we'll have an appearance at uh, Pandora's Box. And if anybody out there has any suggestions for our uh, workshops to come, we are uh, open for workshops to be booked during the fall time. I'm kind of keeping everything um, status quo for right now because Raven is finishing up his new book. And, um, and we're in a transition period of uh, the rental house that yeah. the insurance company paid for. It's coming to a quick end, and we're not ready. The house is not ready for us to move back into, so... We don't know where we'll be, how things are going to work, <laughs> uh, whether we'll be homeless or what's going to happen. Well, so, we won't be homeless. Well, I, it's a word. That. It's a word. I Meaning know. we don't have a home. Right. People will gladly pass us from couch to couch, I'm sure. <gasps> but I'm yeah. just saying the word homeless is not meant to be dramatic. It's, it's just not, not having a home. The bard. There's a profound sense of that. Yeah, I think it comes from when I was a kid growing up. The we bard. Moved. The bard. We is. moved. Yes. Every year, and the sense of home is very strong with me, right. feeling of sense of home. Right. right now, we don't know what home is going to be and what definition that will be come June. That's all I was saying. So, have a wonderful month celebrating this season, this growing season. And uh, we will be back with Seasons of the Witch on May 16th. We hope you will join us. And until then, we wish you many blessings of the season. May you always look with favor upon us. May there always be peace between us. We'll catch you at the next show. Thanks for tuning in. Love and blessings to you all. <laughs>